clanging is a sound. Clang, bang, bang, clang, clang in your head. Self-evident. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is... Reconfiguring whiteness. Hi everyone. We're really excited today to be joined by Dr. Shamsha Sinha. We are going to talk about sociology and the wonders of the world sounds very deep it is very deep (laughs) and i've just been listening to you guys talk very philosophically about the meaning of life and how sociology can tell us more about how the meaning of life is constructed yeah i think so A, a sense of what the world is and what we're touching seeing hearing feeling and how actually in sociology we've truncated that, we've knocked that out. We, 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 we've constructed our knowledge through boxes on the questionnaire or an audio interview where you come in a room with me, I've got a recorder, I listen to you, then I'll type out what you said and then I've got words on the page and somehow that's your life. Somehow that's actually who you are and your, your sense of the world in, in whatever. And then I will take that and I'll cut it into Atlas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll have data segments, which I decide what the segments are. You don't. You have no say in that. And is that a way of knowing? For me, that's a profound way of packing knowledge up, not unpacking it. That is something, particularly as like just coming to the end of like field work and stuff, and my interviews. Like it's such a tension, isn't it? Like when you're trying to write about what people have said to you, but it's your interpretation yeah. of their world. Yeah, but isn't this a problem in the way that social sciences are conceived? It's conceived as a science, right? Yes. So the methodology is meant to be a scientific method, right? Mm. So that rigour we apply is applied to have that... So so by definition, Mm. it has that kind of scientific rigour that kind of truncates things. It it orders things. So it takes takes Mm. something that's natural, which you're studying, Mm. and it tries to make it formulaic so someone can repeat it in abstract. Yeah. Yeah. But there, there, there is... Actually, when I, when I was reading, um, well, I studied some of my undergrad at, in Munster in Germany, mm. and one of the courses there was on um, Geisterwissenschaft, mm-hmm. which, which we translate in English, and in, in Gadamer, who's a philosopher, that when it's translated into English, it's translated as human sciences, mm-hmm. which I think is alongside what you're saying. But actually, if you took that original German, you could think of that translation differently. It doesn't translate like that. Mm -hmm. There's something about spirit in there, spirit and sciences. Uh, And we've lost that sense of ideas and how ideas come about Mm -hmm. that are outside of that deductive knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then you you can root off and think, if you take that other routing, you can think about, well, what does that mean then epistemologically for us? Mm We don't have to live in this world of separation of, of mind-body or of uh, even objective and subjective in that way, you know. That's a big topic. So by doing that, aren't you kind of questioning like the values of modernity itself? Because we, in the act of naming and separating, that's what modernity is. Naming, separating, cataloguing mm. and listing things. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely questioning that because I see what what that's led to in terms of uh, indentured labour and colonialism and slavery, you know. Mm-hmm. And and how does that play into... You know, we, we see those ideas as being part of Europe and European uh, intellectual thought, but, but I was like, hang on a second. Imagine you're, uh, you're a working mum and you've got three kids and you're going to the supermarket... And your kid at the supermarket is telling you they're hungry, but you've got the bill to pay and something else is going, actually, how are you going to separate those things? Actually, in their lives, they're not separated, are they? And I wonder if we were asking people outside of the packing up of knowledge, even in Europe, about whether those things are separate. And, you know, when I'm at the supermarket, I'm actually doing the bills. I'm actually doing something else as well. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. I think you're seeing that kind of trend in now in contemporary society where people are questioning everything so knowledge itself is being questioned so what is knowing at the moment so people start questioning is the earth round mm. that's a prominent question right now yeah and these are this is the kind of breaking down of the western canon yeah but it's also led the west to be in crisis and it's, it, and it's manifesting itself in what well, a crisis of civilization the rise of the far right this mm. is the West question, questioning the project of modernity. Are you rooting that into... Uh, when you're thinking of that, are you, are you thinking of that 
with the psychological dynamics, you know, that the people like yeah. Fanon and other people bring mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You can see that in people's faces right now. Mm-hmm. People are questioning things and what does it mean? The whole idea of the debate of truth. What mm. is true? And it's a kind of, it goes back to Nietzsche and stuff like that. Mm. This is, these are fundamental questions that the West had never answered mm. well, well, effectively mm. at the start of the Enlightenment. And people are questioning these things now. And mm. I think it ties into that kind of project, what is knowing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, but I would even say that before this current, yeah, in quotations, crisis that we're in, like what Shamsha's saying, like particularly when you just gave the example of the shopping list, that does remind me of my very first lectures in social theory and sociology and not really understanding how these philosophers and key thinkers were breaking down the world and how I found it so difficult because I couldn't apply it to my lived experience. I couldn't apply it to how I felt like I existed Mm. Um, so obviously there are people, as you say, T, so that, that are questioning knowledge in ways that is led least to be destructive. But also I think that the failures of that modernity and those thinkers and what they were saying in terms of what they deemed as progressive has left out so many people. There is a group that within this crisis, perhaps rightfully so, are reclaiming their own versions mm. of truth got so deep you can have a crack you can have a crack on it uh, doing that but i feel sometimes you need to step aside of sociology to to or not to do that but it's helpful to do that if you step outside of sociology mm-hmm. because you've got people who are seeking truth or or, or, or performing their way of, of truth whether they're uh, working as tas in in, in primary schools as or a teaching people, assistant yeah Sorry, teaching assistant got yeah global audience now yeah. Yeah. So break down the or people working as a theatre and film directors, as people working in the field of dance, youth workers. They're all doing dialogue yeah. all the time. Their concepts of what is knowledge and what is sense making for them lies outside of the way we have our knowledge in sociology. We we pack that knowledge up. We're not unpacking that knowledge because we, mm. we we've truncated our sense of what the world is. Mm. I wonder, you know whether we as sociologists really like people and society or do we just like systems? I love systems. Tiso does love systems. I like systems. I like. I, I find them fascinating. I like looking at how things are structured and, yeah. and how things move and I'm always looking for patterns. But yeah. I know there's no pattern. And that's the irony. I know there's no pattern, but I look for patterns. You're like Neo. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. I'm looking for the glitch in the matrix. But yeah, I like systems. As a human being, do I like people? Sometimes. I'm misanthropist sometimes. Yeah. Other times, I quite, well, like a certain few people, maybe two or three. Yeah. But as a sociologist, if I'm honest, I say I'm, I, I probably look for systems all the time. Mm. And always looking for the bigger, the bigger narrative. That ties into another narrative, that ties into another narrative. Mm. When really, maybe we should start, I suppose, in my own research, I'm starting at the individual level. So I'm looking at pe- mm. people in itself, mm. in, in the microcosm. But I'm always looking to tie that microcosm back into the system. Mm. And maybe, that, is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's the wrong yeah. way. But people do dialogues in their professions, mm-hmm. which are doing that, or in, the work, in their non-professional mm. life. Mm. They may be doing it very differently, to you and thousands of other people or whatever, but the, the, the sense of here I am as an individual, here is that person as an individual, mm. um, what does this behaviour, let's take the, the teaching assistant mm. in a primary school, uh, one child isn't attuned to learning one particular way, starts learning another particular way, you've got the teacher and the teaching assistant, you're within the code of what's allowed within a school. That's already your institution mm. intersecting with the dialogue of you and the pupil and the pupil's intersection, having that dialogue back to you. Mm. So I think there, there's a, that kind of interactionism, that symbolic interactionism, you know, C. Wright Mills, mm. Les, Bev Skeggs, you know, loads of people mm. uh, are aware of. The people that are activating that, whether they critically reflect on those concepts, it's difficult to clit- critically reflect in those terms if you don't use those terms but that doesn't mean to say that they don't use terms that we could learn from so it's interesting you say that i'm reading a book at the moment by lucina trimbo it's called come at, come at swinging and it's looking at um the post-industrial landscape in new york right and the notion of work so most of the guys are long-term unemployed or underemployed hmm. but they 
she said they manifest work through the stuff that they do through uh, amateur levels. So they're boxing at the gym, so mm. they do it for the love of it. Mm. But they maintain, they, they show work through their body. Mm. So they, they're consistent, they're disciplined. All the things you associate with being a good worker, mm. that's what they show through their body, through their discipline. Mm. Who is it? Is it someone, another, is it a sociologist? Is it Mesha Schmidt? It talks about bodily capital mm. and uses the example of bouncers. Mm. And how you yeah become your work mm. through your physique. Your body, it, beca- yeah. it becomes the symbol of. Your... I don't know that work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, we've we've gone we've gone straight into the deep stuff. And I also didn't introduce the fact that you are one of the authors of Migrant City, <laughs> which am, is yeah. one of our favourite books. It also inspired one of our whole seasons of the podcast more recently. The sociable sociology, the way you talk about people's lives in such a thoughtful, fluid. And just sensitive way was is just so amazing in the book. When yourself and Les present on it, like watching how engaged audiences are, like you don't often see that in rooms for mm. the sociologists. Mm. And it's so interesting because some of the things that you guys do within the book and obviously that you did within the research is something that I feel like sociologists feel like they maybe can't do. Being social and friendly and not detached from people's lives. Mm. I get it's something that we 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 strive to do mm. essentially like having that sort of mm. that process of care and it's really interesting when I hear people ask questions to yourself and those mm. when you give presentations about it and it's it's like they're so sometimes this isn't everyone of course feel sort of removed from being able to do that sort of research yeah to yeah it, uh, so. but I th- I think part of that is in the frame of how we do sociological research if we if we're active academics at universities sometimes we're paid by funders to achieve certain outcomes and certain results within a certain time frame sometimes they they can be quite depending quite policy focused and what what about if that research is problematic in terms of what the funders want if it was um, a home office piece of research or something to do with prevent or if it was to do with uh, young people not in employment Educational training that we, we that we we call needs that I think is a term they use in the EU yeah. as well. Yeah. Is there, are there um, sociologists being funded by Prevent? I have no idea. Oh, I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, and even the yeah. Home Office. But problematic oh. premises is the yeah. is the point. We're about security and immigration. Yes. I'm sure there are. In yes. fact. Mm. And, I, and I've been parts of a, a problematic research into uh, the potential development of future criminal pathways as part of uh, uh, the UK uh, new Labour government and its um, implementation, of, implementation of what it called On Track, which was um, alongside Sure Start, which was about saying, OK, we know certain areas, they're uh, uh, high crime, high risk. They've gone through a range of criminology and they they said, okay, here, here are the 23 or 25 areas in England that we're, we're going to, to target for the implementation of welfare services, really. Some of it was about targeting people and intervening, early intervention amongst people and families who might then become criminals. So you can see there's a problematic basis there. But we as sociologists sometimes take the money and we go and do the work. You know, and, and, and then then if you're coding life, because that's what you're doing, you've got your transcript or whatever, you're coding life and you're turning it into a transposition of the talk that you're talking to me, the words that you can hear me saying and I can hear you saying to me now, that I then type it out on a computer. It's then a transcript with printed words on a piece of paper. I'm interested in making those transcripts to segment them to meet those problematic research outcomes then then no wonder people hear books like migrant city and they're going oh you got the people who you did the research with to talk about whether you'd analyzed it you know in a in a in in an insightful way yeah we did you know but could you do that if you were working in that home office project i don't think you could Mm. the first thing you're drilled in when you start when you start any kind of PhD is methods, right? Mm. Methods of research. So that method that Les and yourself are using doesn't kind of lend itself easily to those kind of methods that you're kind of no. taught, you're drilled in. Could you tell, like, give us an introduction to Migrant City and then tell us what the methods were? Effectively? Yes. Yeah. So uh, the book is about, we try to not flatten it out, you know, with, uh, with we want to do this with the book, we want to do that with the book. It was find 30 young migrants who were aged between 18 and 25 and then kind of think about 
what they think of their lives now, what they want to do with their lives if they've got different ideas about what they want to do with their lives, and the facilitators or the barriers that might be in the way stopping them, which necessarily entails a reflection on what the past was because how you're seeing yourself now is related to what you thought where you were before and maybe what you want to be if you can conceive of a of a future uh, if you can conceive of, of a future depending on your circumstances so it's so that's biography isn't it so that's mm-hmm. what it's, it's 30 life histories mm-hmm. it, not not flattened out as much as we we had to flatten out because we only get a certain amount of words in the book mm-hmm. so we had to flatten it out we didn't want to operate with research questions because yeah. my next question would be I was going to ask you what were your research questions then yeah, we didn't. We didn't want any. We wanted to. F- we wanted to talk to people and have them think about their lives and what they want to do and what was stopping them. And you see, as a as a sociologist, one of the key things is when you do your proposal, when you write, is line up your research questions. Your research questions yeah. always come back to your research question, mm. and so you can see why people feel like there's a kind of a discomfort mm. as a sociologist because I'm thinking like this is not what I've been talk going back to that notion mm. of that western canon like it's drilled into you right mm. so you follow that structure if you follow that structure you'll be okay the way you're speaking like to come off the structure come yeah. off that path yeah it's unnerving for people we, 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 we had a critique of, of that path that at least at least Les certainly did and, mm. and I did because I was very alienated with, with sociology it wasn't speaking to me mm. it was a, a systemised way of talking about the world which didn't feel like um, you know Jean Moore and John Berger in the Seventh Man. You know, it didn't. It didn't feel like uh, uh, Franz Fanon, or it didn't feel like some of the films, you know, that I'd watched. It, it, there, there was nothing in that, in there. Of course, there aren't. There wasn't some sociology, mm. some generalising, mm. um, that made me think the world's at stake here. Mm-hmm. If the world's not at stake, why would I bother doing it? Unless I was being paid loads of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't bother doing it. And if if you're saying, if you then create, try and work with people on, say, 30, 30 uh, stories, uh, you know, about their lives, then one person is the world and that world's at stake because that person connects with this person and so on and so on. Each individual is changing that whole world every day mm-hmm. in those micro-actions. Mm-hmm. The world will never be the same again. Now, if you're thinking about that as a sociologist with the system in mind, you're thinking about, maybe you're thinking about Esping Anderson's version of welfare and he's dividing, uh, he's influenced by Vax Weber, he's dividing the world into the Nordic welfare state and uh, uh, welfare states in Southeast Asia and it's systems, there's no people in that. There's nothing at stake, I'm not feeling it. And I feel like, I guess what I felt sort of more disappointed with recently is that the teaching that I'm aware of, or some of the teaching that I'm aware of, some of the things that we're pushing to our undergrad students does not show show people that are learning sociology that the world is at stake. There doesn't mm. feel like there is an urgency within some segments of sociology and even wider social sciences mm. that things need to be thought thought through that we need to be thinking about research in a way that is saving lives effectively mm. because there's just so much that's but sociology as it conceived it's not conceived as people it's conceived as looking at systems right mm. so for marx weber the kind of, like people are in it but they're kind of secondary to the system right so if you start with them yeah if you start if you start, start, you start, start with say, them that's, <laughs> and that's what you that's what people are drilled in from mm. undergrad to postgrad to PhD these are like I guess that's the canon isn't it yeah and so the canon is obviously as part of the decolonising movement that is the, the canon is problematic yeah deeply problematic mm-hmm. and it is it's very difficult to to shift it while being in a university mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I remember um, on, on, on the idea of the world being at stake. There's a um, uh, there's a guy I know uh, who's a uh, who's a theatre director, uh, and he's done a lot of work with movement and dance. But he used to be a soldier, mm-hmm. and um, unfortunately, um, deeply unfortunately, deeply tragically, um, he's been in, in war zones, and and. 
so I'd written something about the world and the world being at stake as as the, as the, as, a, as a parent is holding a baby. And there was a particular moment, a particular story I was writing mm-hmm. um, where where that occurred. And he 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 took that into a rehearsal room and worked on it in terms of movement to express it in a language form through body and movement. Mm-hmm in a way that sensitizes you, in a way you get a different appreciation of that mm-hmm. than from a literary word or from a word of, 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 of having that as part of Weber's inductive logic, for mm-hmm. example. There's a totally different appreciation, different conceptual appreciation. And for him, he talked about it in terms of when he picked up a soldier who was dying in his arms and that, that he felt the whole world, not just him and that person, that actually everything he could conceive of the whole world was at stake in getting this man some kind of attention that might help save his life. I just wonder where, where we're... I don't think the stake has to be as grim as that, but I just need to feel that there's a reason for me turning a page in this book mm-hmm. if I'm reading sociology. Mm-hmm. I suppose, well, when we do sociology, I think, like I said, it, for me, definitely, I've obsessed about systems, right? And the more I... The more I look into my PhD, the more I speak to people, I understand there's people that we should be looking at, their stories, their perspective on things. As a sociologist, I'm going to take what they say. And I'm, I was going to ask you that. So obviously you've got these life histories, but you can't put all their life histories in. No. So therefore you're, you're, you're the editor, right? Yeah. And so you're deciding mm. what is truth, what mm. is knowledge. Mm. And we come back to that same thing mm. of we decide what's canon. Yeah. But there, there, there is a, a way of working that you can you can have a go at moving away from that mm-hmm. if if you work with the people who are making up the the case studies, if you like, mm-hmm. you've compiled them and you show them to that person, and they they say no, that's that's not going in, or I like this to go in, mm-hmm. then then you are at least working with them to say what is the final. What what is okay. you, you you're truncating it because you're not you've only got one book and a certain amount of pages mm. that truncation is always there, mm. but in in kind of they've got a shaping voice they can say now you know this is not the story, I want this in I want that in, which is different. So you're saying sociology should be in its truest sense collaborative all the time. At least qualitative sociology. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think I think quantitative sociology can have a lot of offer a lot to offer especially when it talks about global inequality. Yeah. And then that starts to become a, a thing of well how do you do quantitative sociology in a way that um, you've got thousands and thousands of people how mm. do you do that deeply collaborative work? Mm. Maybe you think of it differently. You know, uh, but I think there's a, there's there there is an ethical value in that quantitative work that charts deeply meaningful scales of global human inequality. I I particularly like thinking about qualitative um, sociology and what you say here about it being collaborative. It's definitely something when I've been doing research over the past few years, and obviously like I'm very junior. What I found is almost impossible for me not to bring myself into the conversations that I've had with people, particularly mm. when I'm talking about inequalities and racism, because that's what I predominantly will talk to people about. It never feels right to say that I am detached from what they're talking about. And I don't know if that's because like I'm a black woman and the person in front of me, we've got we've got similar experiences mm. in that sense. Like I don't know if it's because of that or because I don't have it in me to try and be objective mm. within that within that conversation and that collaborative mm. space mm. and obviously that has that has there's ethical issues there as well mm. like am i am i projecting something onto my participants mm. like am i influencing my participants my partner says to me that I, i'm an overdose on empathy <laughs> and when most of the world when most of the world is under empathize and that that's okay but it means that i just i don't feel like i can yeah. I can navigate sociology and doing social research, qualitative social research, in the in the way that is maybe respected by the academy and the funders and all yeah. that sort of thing. And that's why I think Migrant City definitely spoke to me. And obviously, like I'm really lucky. Like Les is one of my supervisors. Like why his approach to sociology mm. is so important to me because it does feel radical. Like. Mm 
what what you're saying and how we're talking about it being collaborative it does feel radical because everything is sort of telling us to not do it like that because we're going to influence or mm. we're going to affect the research or we're going to whenever i think of research methods i always think that basically even though you're striving for this kind of detachment you're creating artificial situations all the time and you're supposed to be studying something in its natural okay yes setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah but you, by definition even by being a participant yeah you're being you're you're creating something artificial, so it's an artificial reality within a reality. Yeah. Well, for for me, it's an, it's it's another social interaction yeah. that's as real as other social interactions, mm. but but you've provoked it. Yes. For the purpose. Yes. And I think it should be more of a kind of like a like you said, a, more like a conversation, in its truest sense, to elicit true information from a certain person or a subject. Like I said, I'm doing a research methods unit at the mm. moment. And it's the complete opposite of social, social sociology. Mm. It's the rules, right? Mm. And they're telling you follow these rules. Mm. And so postgrads are being drilled, drilled, drilled. Mm. So there's a whole group of people going to go out there and do research mm. along those lines, mm. extract information and truncate because that is that is the norm. Mm. But I think I think um, we we can even push further away from. Than, than we do with sociable sociology away from that norm. I think maybe it's to really... I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if there's more mileage in, in, in developing soci- sociable sociology far further. Mm-hmm. If you think about, say, the role of technology, and on one side, OK, so I was listening to something, and it was on about counselling services and how people are using AI to build voices and personalities... So when you rang up for your counselling, the person, it's not a person, it's, it's a computer, mm. voiced, empathising with you, um, oh God, and you're talking, with, yeah. you're talking with them about your, your personal problems. And, and then there's another level, which is humans. But, but your initial consultation is, is, is that kind of voice. So there's that, there's that kind of technology going on. There's a technology where welfare decisions and decisions and other aspects of life are made by algorithms, in computer programs. Mm-hmm. So we see the way we are being having humanity emptied out of us. We're, we're data. You know, we're, we're, we're extracted. We are data extracts. And the rest of what, what Gadama calls in his version of Bildung, which interestingly translates as education in, in German, uh, the building of a person is about past, present, future. It's about narrative, and the idea of narrative is set in those historical terms as well, is not about that truncation. And you think, okay, there's other sides of technology that afford possibilities. So if you think of stuff like virtual reality and trying to think of an epistemology of the senses that moves even even further than sociable sociology moves because it's no longer centred necessarily, there's much value in it, but it's no longer centred necessarily on me talking with you and recording, even if it's showing photos or, or, or you, you haven't collected scrapbooks or whatever. There's a way of hearing, touching, feeling and sensing the world that you can adapt. And there's also a horrible voyeuristic aspect to it as mm-hmm. well. It just mm-hmm. depends how you, how you do it. Mm-hmm. It's not the method in it. The, the technology in and of itself is not great. Mm-hmm. But you can use the technology to get a little bit more of how, in this world, when I'm not talking to you, the researcher, I'm actually feeling with my fingertips... I'm thinking with a bit of my brain, I'm smelling in my nostrils, I'm hearing there, mm. that, that more holistic experience, that we can do that and we can move further away from what the academy is teaching us. So when, I, when, you, when you said that, what sprang to mind was when you said that data to me was like, and going to the other side, that kind of freeing ourselves, it made me think of Weber and his iron cage of rationality. So that's... With his, sorry? His iron cage of rationality. Mm. So Weber, that's the iron... But it made me think of Rousseau, mm. trying to get in touch with nature, trying to be... The kind of the other side to us, and I don't think Western philosophy has done a good job at doing that. No, it, it tends to to follow Weber's line, mm. and in being in touch with all those other senses, it's how do you register that? How do you, if you're a researcher, how do I collate that? How do I make that make sense to people? Mm. I think that's probably the question. I like how would people do? People have a mm. go. It's mm. Berger and Moore were doing this in the early seventies. Mm. John Berger says. One of his big influences was a philosopher, John Berger uh, is dead now, but one of his big influences was a philosopher called Benedict Spinoza. Mm, yes. Apparently, Spinoza was a lens grinder. 
he ground lenses in 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 and glass so you could see better so you mm. could perceive the world better mm. berger in one of his last books it's called bento's sketchbook and he knows that there's a lost sketchbook that spinoza wrote mm. and he's thought his whole life apparently so john berger says where is his sketchbook and what would be in that sketchbook if you found it so then he goes, right, I'm going to write this sketchbook. I'm going to write Bento's sketchbook. And Berger's first discipline is as a sketch artist. He gets this bunch of quetch, which I believe is a type of fruit. And he's seen this type of fruit in his back garden, month on month, year after year. Um, he knows what they look like. He knows what they smell like. He knows what the, you know, the touch of it in his hand. He knows. One day, he wakes up in the morning and he decides he wants to know what a handful of quetches. And you go, hang on a second. You definitely know. It's in your garden. But he takes the handful of quetch and he sketches it. And he spends hours and hours sketching it like Spinoza grinding that lens. And he says he has, because of the hours he spent sketching it and a particular worm that crawls over the, over, over the quetch, he has a new conceptual understanding of the quetch, of a, different, of a different way of sensing that world that he renders to you through colour and ink and drawing. And that's without the technology. So people have done this kind of epistemological work it's where you find it and where you draw it. And I think you can draw outside of the canon on work already there to mm. inform you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a that's such a powerful way of sort of showing or identifying what you were just saying before about us becoming like data. And it's like we have to retrieve the senses that we're, we're being told aren't as important or mm. that maybe we should move away from it. It's like we've got to come back to hu- mm. come back to humans, kind mm. of. Mm, I think and, so. There's that concept of planetary humanism that yeah. I like that Gilroy draw, Paul Gilroy yeah. draws upon, develops, yeah. um, which, which, which helps us think of it in, in, in outside of, I think, I think Gilroy's right, outside of um, those Eurocentric understandings of humanity. There was so much... When we were talking earlier, when you were talking about... Um, how when we have in, when we do interviews with people we take extracts from their interview and we decide what's going to be right what's going to be wrong and we also take that interview whether we do one two or three interviews of the person and we assume that that interview in itself can tell us about how that person sees the world or how yeah. they see their lived experience or how yeah. they understand their lived experience and that's deeply problematic mm. and like that's one of the tensions that I find and I'm trying to write about what mm. people are talking to me about, particularly when they're sort of painful memories. And also, this is actually, roll back as well, something that I definitely want to get your opinion on, Shamsha. What, how do we navigate, as sociologists, when we're getting people to talk about, and I'm sure you definitely have this in Migrant City, really difficult things that have happened in their life Hmm. that they've never actually put voice to hmm. before coming into that interview setting with hmm. you? Like, how how does what we're talking about work in that sense? Because the sociology then is actually, it's not giving voice to, but it's helping the person locate this extreme institutional mm. racism that they've experienced, this extreme mm. interpersonal racism they've experienced, something that they haven't actually voiced or spoken mm. about outside of this setting. Mm. What does that what does that sort of tell us about the, maybe the powers of sociology? Mm. Um and the powers of that person, yeah, I think uh, that they that they've uh, uh, that they're making sense of their world in a different way, in a new way, and yeah, that you, you yeah. you're just creating uh, a, a, a context that yeah, the, the, the power yeah. of that person, it's the person, not sociology, and, yeah, and, right. and, and and then happy with what you've got and of how it's developing, mm-hmm. so that they're feeling. Not not informed, not informed about the process. They are in the process doing it with you. That I think is um, ethically really important, especially when people have had their selves emptied out of them through deeply humanize, dehumanizing processes like detention camps and mm. um, pupil referral units. Mm-hmm. You know, you name it. Maybe working at McDonald's. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 
and that's really powerful. I'd never thought I'd not done it. I'd not thought about it like that. But it's not the sociology that's bringing the experience out. It's that person that is able to, through those experiences, still locate what it was that actually happened to them. When we're looking at epistemology, then is every person creating knowledge? Then so every person that you, you speak to or be interactive is producing something. Yeah, uh, and you've got your role in thinking <laughs> about what you think of that. <clears throat> but but that, that 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 knowledge is produced through the horizons, as Gadamer has it, the horizons of their insight <clears throat> meeting the horizons of your insight, and you're pushing each insight further. The horizons of each insight further. It could be through a conversation. <clears throat> it could be through movement. The language of movement and dance, it could be through cooking's really powerful in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. oh, oh, I've got another, uh, a friend of mine's a, a guy called Akinteyo Akinbode, and he's a musical director. And I've worked with him uh, on, on a number of occasions and for, for various uh, projects. Uh, and if you, he, he's the kind of guy that will, like, he just picks stuff up and he plays it. And that's how he learnt. He learnt by ear. He just picked stuff up and learned how to play it. He'll do everything from the the, the music on Specsavers, mm-hmm. which, which, which pays in the royalties, paid for his house in Manchester. And he'll do theatre shows and he'll do... And the way he talks about a piece of music is the way that we talk about a language. We, prem- we, 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 we heighten our sense of verbal language. I'm talking to you, and that listener can hear me because I'm saying words. I could just make sounds or whatever, and they'd hear me too. Mm. But he- Teo's point is that those sounds are saying things. They're actually literally saying things. It's not, it, it goes beyond another language. It is actually like the words we use. That the co- I'm actually sitting here now, in front of me is a coffee cup. It says coffee on it. Mm. A sound does that. Those things. Yeah. Sounds do those things. <clears throat> outside of those words, and so I think that 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 we need to to, to broaden our sense of uh, epistemology to encompass those things. But what do we do when people use that epistemology for things for dehumanising practices, or to say, or to say that things like race science exist and I'm not trying to make it extreme mm. but just how pe- that, that that use of epistemology is being misused quite a lot right now is that what you were going to yeah, talk I, I, about I was, yeah. was going to add to that like at the moment people people are questioning what is knowledge itself mm. so if, if you start questioning knowledge itself well what do you know mm. and it, it's quite scary if you don't if knowledge is not knowledge then we know nothing and also, like you've got people that are saying, "Look, this knowledge was the wrong one. This is the knowledge that uh, this is the knowledge that's the right one. This is the knowledge that's going to save you." So I'm thinking about like um, neo-white supremacists that are sort of. Do you know what I mean? Like I know it's we're sort no, of no, no. taking it a bit extreme, well, particularly because mm. you've just given such a beautiful example. But it always makes me think about like we've got those examples, and we've got people that are saying that they hold the knowledge because the other knowledges haven't served a particular mm. group. So come and listen to our knowledge. Um, I, I suppose it's like a kind of like a kind of niche and kind of notion of like competing truths, right? Mm. There's all this knowledge, there's multiple, there's not one form of knowledge, right? There's That's what I, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's multiple yeah. forms of knowledge, right? Yeah. So we think of knowledge as inductive or deductive, especially mm-hmm. if we're, we're sociologically educated. Mm-hmm. But, but that sense of... Um, you know, you get that, those notions of the sublime. Yes. Whether you're talking about a football commentator and a piece of skill that Mo Salah does, or whether you're talking about fire or uh, what people thought of as magic and then medicine, those things where form changes, those notions of the sublime. Mm. Well, we feel that, I think, when we're, when we're around. We, we see something, hear something, touch something, we go, OK, that means something. The moment when I see Earth rise, that Apollo 8 photo of planet Earth as it's rising above the moon, mm-hmm. it actually, we know there's something in there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite fit into 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it is knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to think about what that knowledge is and then why, why, and what senses are we feeling and why do we like that? What's drawing us to it? And I think there you start getting into those questions about justice and social justice where you can push against oh, okay, those yeah. deeply dehumanising notions. Yeah, okay, yeah, that makes, that does make sense, yeah. Because, yeah, this is sort of like the line between saying knowledge can be fluid and there's different ways of interpreting knowledge against, 
yeah, things that are just not true and dehumanised. But yeah, once we recognise it as that, we can start to question it, as you said. I think so. Yeah. I think it's a point that Paul Gilroy doesn't unpack. Mm. He begins to get to, and he might not want to unpack it, mm. I have no idea, in his book After Empire, where he talks about infrahumanity and he talks about the self-evident sameness of human suffering or the clanging self-evident sameness of human suffering. And I don't know if he reflected on it. He, he may well have, I have no idea. But the use of the words, clanging. Clanging is a sound. Clang, bang, bang, clang, clang in your head. Mm. Self-evident. Mm. You're not proving, I'm not proving to you, the sameness of that human suffering. It's self-evident. So there's, there, I think mm. they're, they're, you're, you're on the borders there of another kind of mm. way of pushing against social injustice mm. outside of those inductive, deductive logical terms. So how do we get outside those inductive and deductive methods? Because like I said, it it goes back to Aristotle and mm. it's deeply embedded in Western mm. culture, right? Mm. So even when you're talking about an argument of logic, mm. you're using those methods, mm. right? So if I, I learned how to construction an argument mm. following those methods, mm. and that's before I even got, so when you're going through uh, secondary school, mm. To have that kind of is it a deductive method mm. working that, and it's so ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how does one move past that? Because as mm. you're talking to me, and I'm trying to think, should I do it? It feels uncomfortable. So I think um, we can study the way people do do it in the way they do dialogue. So the way people work with dialogue outside of the academy of sociology, how do they have their sense of knowing what constitutes that, and how do they describe that to you? Because they have to describe it to you in a way that you understand. They have to tell you the story to carry you along the path mm. to understanding it. So they're constructing something for you. Gadamer in his book, Truth and, and Method, he's doing something similar. He's criticising actually more inductive knowledge. I, I, I'm not sure how far he, his sense of direction is really about looking at deductive knowledge. But he's criticising uh, notions of inductive knowledge uh, as taking people outside of history, outside of memory, as turning people into to fragments rather than lives. But the way he does it, there is a logic to it. He's not abandoning logic, because if he did, you wouldn't be able to follow one sentence to the next sentence to the next sentence, mm-hmm. to, to the sense-making set of paragraphs. But what he's trying to do is to develop an alternative epistemology that says... Hang on. Let, why is a, a, a okay? So why, why does a minor note when you're playing music? Why is it scary? Well, we know we get the feeling. If my friend Teo is composing something haunting, or other people when they're talking about film music, I go, "Well, we'll hit these notes. We'll hit those notes. Those are scary sounds. Mm. We know they're scary. We're scared by them." And then perhaps we use it in a language with vision on a cinema screen or a TV. There is a logic in the way they're putting that together. Mm-hmm. It's just not quite the same as that inductive and deductive knowledge, logic. But it's opening up aspects of social existence. So in Guantanamo, they use sound mm-hmm. to terrorise people, yes. to terrorise people. In, in, there, there's, and you, you can describe that, but actually there's a sense in which that sound works that does it lie in those deductive and inductive terms? You can relate them to the social structures and talk about it that way, absolutely. But there's the sound of it in the confine that's the thing that's terrorising you in the immediate sense. And I think that widens your appreciation of what that is. That's a good, that's a good fact. You know what this talk reminds me of? It reminds me of walking into the Tate Modern, right? It's so abstract. And like, yeah. <laughs> you walk into Tate Modern and thinking, what does that even mean? But it's... It, it's, it's it's disruptive, right? And it's, 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 that's a good thing, right? Hmm. My my friend is a guy called Project Five AM. Actually, he's my mate Jason, hmm. and uh, he lives in Ipswich. And he's a visual and audio artist, so he's often working outside of word to communicate something to you, hmm. an argument to you through music and vision. So I'm just I'm just thinking of my, my own experience. So trying to communicate using that kind of museum analogy. So when I find people, when you take them to these ideas, speaking to people who are already set in the mindset, they're so, not radical, but just, it's too, they're so lateral. Hmm. So it's hard for people to kind of truly put them in a frame because everyone's hmm. looking to, even when you're speaking to me, my initial reaction is to try to categorise them, list hmm. them, put them in boxes. Hmm. 
but they but it, it doesn't really fit it doesn't really fit well mm. and that's what makes me uncomfortable mm. because like I said I like systems and I like the order mm. so again for me it's just kind of just thinking taking the board what you just said trying to think when I do my own research mm. try to think of it in a different way mm. trying to I don't know it's a, it's a whole research methods chapter <laughs> it could be other it could be yeah. other systems yeah, yeah. It, it might not be because because I think I think project I think Jason, Project 5AM is working mm. in some kind of classificatory system. Mm-hmm. It's just that you have to look and hear it, that you that it's not imprinted in the format of letters and that you have to play the, play the MP3 and, you know, play another MP3 mm-hmm. and then play another MP3 and you go, OK, I got it. If you were... So based on the conversation that we've just had and um, we're having coming to an end on this podcast, if there was something that you would want our listeners in particular to think about, particularly like academics and sociologists that are doing research, what would be like one of the key things that you would like people to take away from this conversation, particularly epistemologically? I'd like them to to think about their reading lists and then oh, think yes. about... <laughs> Say that again, please, Travis. <laughs> Yeah. And think about what would their understanding of argument be if they didn't read what was on that reading list, but they heard other sounds or read other books. Snail on a whale. What's that? That's the book. Is it a kid's book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's a kid's book. Okay. It's for if you're under five. Okay. But your appreciation of biography and journey, wow, what a different sense of it you get mm-hmm. sociologically if you read that. The animation of the snail, it's on a rock, it wants to go on an adventure, it sees this massive whale, then you've got the journey through time and the sea and so on, just, just, and you go, hang on, that's actually about ideas, it's about biography, it's about how you discover the world and how you make knowledge in that world. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel like, some of the stuff on my reading list mm-hmm. but I would say read that you know or just or, or, or listen to the music that moves you and go okay why does that music move you it's moving you for whatever reason it is I don't know but why is it moving you and then that's part of your sense making it's telling you it's you and your appreciation of the world around you big concept you're talking about ontological epistemological massive concepts right mm. and I don't, I don't like I said I don't think people maybe should, should they I only understood those kind of terms as I got older, as I read more. Mm. But it's those, it's the very canon that I that we're kind of criticising at first that was my first steps into understanding mm. those concepts, right? But don't you think it's the, it's the fact the fact that you wear or we're feeling like oh this is like outside of systems, this is outside of inductive, reductive, and whatever? It takes us back to before we were socialised in that way. So you think about like being a kid, like you don't necessarily you're not thinking about systems, you're taught systems, you're taught ways of knowing and knowledge. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a sort of process of unlearning. That maybe Shamsha's calling for. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, but I think that child is free. It's an yeah. energy, he's free, right? But he's not really free. He's born into the system. Hmm. So it's the illusion of freedom. It's the problem of Neo. Yeah, it's the illusion of freedom, right? Yeah. So you're not free. You think you're free, but you, you don't really. And this, so you're, you're born into it. It exists before you. So what music would you listen to then if you want to go, oh, this is get this is get on my nerves. This is encroaching on my life. It's constraining me, and I'm listening to another piece of music. What list of music are you listening to? In all honesty, I, I don't really do that anymore, man. I, it's, hmm. it's mainly training. So okay, so there's something from that training that's mm. happening. Mm. I think yeah about your appreciation appreciation of who you are and what the world is. Mm-hmm. That and that's what you're doing with your circumstances of the canon and so on. You're right. I'm doing training now. Yeah, mine used to be, mine definitely used to be music and it's yeah, not as it's much not, it's anymore. Not, it's not, I don't, no, it's, it's not as much anymore. What do I do that may, running maybe, running. Um, yeah, a lot of people do running. Yeah. Organising everything. Organising, yeah. Organising. Yeah. <laughs> Organising, but that is, but that almost isn't, that's almost me working with systems. Yeah, running is the time and exercise, and I think when I'm away from systems and I can think about, I can be sensitive. Actually, when I do, when I run and exercise, it, it's when I have some of the, I think, the, one of my better ideas about how to do sociology. And sometimes I have to stop and write them down on my phone. <laughs> I <think>. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I train, I'm not, I don't feel part of anything. I feel 
Free. Free. Mm. For the first time, like mm. in for an hour, I don't think of anything else mm. but what's at hand. Mm. And I think that's that's kind of that's the spontaneity that's spontaneity everyone's looking for, right? Mm. To be in the moment. Mm. And, for, and that's the only time I truly feel I am in the moment. Other times I feel you're part of the system. Mm. What's yours, Tamisha? What's your I mean apart from FIFA on PlayStation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on Saturday evening, five o'clock, I have uh, I was, I've type two diabetic, and um, quite limited in what food I eat. Mm-hmm. But maybe on that that time, I can chuck this food and chuck that food, and I've got just got a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. I can do some cooking, and uh, maybe my appreciation of what the world is mm-hmm. changes when I'm doing that cooking. Yeah, cooking's important. one as well, definitely one for me. Yeah, that's a it's a bit of a sanctuary, isn't it? Chopping, cooking. The, the I never thought of it yeah, as yeah, terms yeah. of analysis either, but I feel it's an analytical thing, which mm-hmm. is a strange concept. Mm-hmm. Sanctuary and analysis. One is about protection and taking away, but analysis is about thinking over. And I just feel that when I'm doing that cooking, that I'm I'm beginning to draw a synthesis outside, or when I'm I writing totally stories. And I do. I spend a lot of time writing stories. Really, I need to write stories. I, I definitely feel like that's those sanctuaries. They're very few and far between between for me, but they are some of the times when I have the best ideas. I think <laughs> we're gonna have to end there. <laughs> it's so deep. It's about it's amazing, Champion. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for the offer. Like yeah. I'm, I'm. I think it's I think it's the most theoretical one we've done yeah definitely (laughs) definitely the most theoretical episode we've done but it's making me think about how like do better by our participants do better with people no one likes research methods man (laughs) no one likes doing research no no I never did either (laughs) thank you so much Amisha thank you thank you Um, we'll be back next week of course thank you again to our Patreon supporters Um, if you're able to support us please do Um, and also please do rate and subscribe Um, the more you do the more we can get the word out about sociology thank you thank you thank you brilliant man You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate and subscribe. You can also find more of us on Twitter and Instagram.